Ecclesiastes chapter 3. If you've got your Bible here, uh, we'll dive in, working our way through this uh, book of the Bible. And today is the, the last uh, message in this block of Ecclesiastes. We'll do it in, in, a, in, in, a, in I think, three blocks over the course of the year, because there's quite a bit of material to cover. But we've already done eight weeks, which is quite significant. Time flies, doesn't it? Uh, when you're having this much fun. And so next week is Easter Sunday, right? Resurrection Sunday. So come along for that. It'll be a special Easter service. Good one to invite friends and family to. Maybe, the, maybe some of those uh, C&E Christians that you know, right? Christ, Christmas and Easter Christians, get them along. You know, it's a good time of the year. People may just come. So it'll be a good service, sensitive to those who might be here who aren't Christians, as we always try and be. Uh, but, uh, but, a, but a good service, good celebrating the resurrection. And then after that, we've got some other great stuff planned, which we'll tell you about later. So, for this morning, Ecclesiastes chapter 3, and we will start from verse 16 and read to the end of the chapter. And I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. I said to myself, God will bring into judgment both the righteous and the wicked, for there will be a time for every activity, a time to judge every deed. I also said to myself, as for human beings, God tests them so that they may see that they are like the animals. Surely the fate of human beings is like that of the animals. The same fate awaits them both. As one dies, so dies the other. All have the same breath. Humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. All go to the same place, all come from dust, and to dust all return. Who knows if the human spirit rises upward and if the spirit of the animal goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better for people than to eat, to, to enjoy their work, because that is their lot. For who can bring them to see what will happen after them? Good stuff, eh? I didn't hear too many glories and amens and hallelujahs during that reading for some reason. Some of you are a bit quiet there. Was this not an edifying passage of Scripture? Was this not lifting up your spirit? This is pretty depressing. I would say, having, having read through the book, and I know many of you have, this is probably the, the bleakest that Ecclesiastes gets. It's probably the darkest passage right here. And to be honest, it's almost comical reading Christian commentators scrambling around trying to make sense of this passage because it's just so dark. It's just so despairing. It's so, I mean, all, especially all this stuff about human beings being no different to the animals. I mean, that's almost, that's embarrassing, isn't it? Well, the fact that that is in the Bible, it's the kind of thing you might expect to hear from, from a non-Christian philosopher. You know, you might expect it from someone like Richard Dawkins or, or, or Peter Singer or Friedrich Nietzsche. But in the Bible... What's all this about human beings being no different to animals? One Christian commentator I read got this far in his, in his book on Ecclesiastes and declared at this point that he believed here the author is just speaking heresy. So that was his, I mean, you know, good Christian uh, writer, but that was the only way he could handle it, is to say at this point, basically, the author is just speaking heresy, which raises a whole other set of questions. <laughs> at what point? Is the author speaking heresy? And at what point is he speaking truth? Who gets to decide that? And what does that say about the inspiration of Scripture 
is this or is this not the word of God? And is it not inspired by the Spirit? And how and why would the Spirit inspire somebody to say, humans have no advantage over animals. Everything is meaningless. Yeah. Anybody have that verse cross-stitched on their wall? It's, it's not a favorite. It's not a favorite, is it? This is bleak stuff. All right, all right. Let's, let's just go back. The key here, the key verse really to sort of Get the, get the ball rolling in terms of the quester's train of thought here. Is back up in verse 16. So just backtrack up to here. He says, I saw something else under the sun. And that phrase is important. It crops up a few times in Ecclesiastes. You have to remember that the author is very, very empirical. He's not interested in philosophy. He's not interested in, in abstract theology. He's interested in what he can see under the sun. What he can observe, what is right in front of him, what is right there, I saw something else under the sun. This is an empirical analysis of what actually happens in life under the sun on earth. I saw something else under the sun. In the place of judgment, wickedness was there. In the place of justice, wickedness was there. Two really important words here. Two really important Old Testament words. The first one, that word judgment, is the word mishpat. And often in the Bible it's translated justice. Mishpat. It's a word that comes to us from the realm of law, the legal realm. And it means to put things right. To put relationships right, to put grievances right, to put situations right. Mishpat is the giving of a judgment, the pronouncing, a declaring that puts something right. And, and, and ultimately that restores the relationships that have been broken, been lost, been severed through this set of circumstances. Mishpat is a judgment that puts things right. And then the second word here, in the place of justice, that word is the word tzaddik. There's a T and an S next to each other, which make it quite hard to pronounce. Tzaddik. Everybody say tzaddik. Yeah, right. Anybody get any saliva on them through that process? Tzaddik. <laughs> and often that word in the Old Testament is translated righteousness. It's not in my translation, but many times when tzaddik is used, it's translated righteousness. So you have justice and you have righteousness. Righteousness is living in right relationship. God is righteous because he lives in right relationship. He relates to us according to the covenant he's made with us. To live in right relationship is to live well with one another and to live rightly before God. Both words are quite relational. And both words, when they come together, form this biblical concept of justice. You find in the Old Testament, time and time again, mishpat and tzaddik go hand in hand. They form a word pair, especially in the prophets. They crop up in the same verse. If, you, if you've got any kind of Bible software or maybe Bible Gateway Online does this and you typed in righteousness and justice and looked for them in the same verse, you find all kinds of times when that happens. Righteousness and justice, righteousness and justice, mishpat and tzaddik, they go together. Because to be righteous is to pursue justice. And to be just is an expression of righteousness. They dovetail, they go hand in hand, and there's a lot of overlapping. God is both righteous and just, and he calls us to be righteous and just. These words come together to give us a biblical concept of what justice is. When we think of justice, we often think judges, lawsuits, court cases, a very formal, a very judicial system Penalties, debts, offences, sentences, punishments. It's a transactional view. It's a formal view. It's a, it's a legal view. In the Bible, justice is highly relational. 
highly relational. It is not this formal, impersonal ledger system of checks and balances, punishments that fit crimes. It is highly relational. It is about restoring relationships. It is about restoring what has been put wrong. It works towards a restorative goal. And that's what the quester is looking for. He's looking around trying to find justice. He's looking around trying to find this righteousness, this justice, this living well, this putting together well, this restored relationship, reconciliation, justice. He looks around and the one place he expects to find it is in the law court. Surely, of all places in society where we should find and see justice being done is in the court system. And what he sees instead is wickedness. Rasa, wickedness. It's a combination of injustice and unrighteousness, that word. Wickedness. He looks at the courts and instead of seeing fair judgments, instead of seeing restorative justice, what he sees is corruption what he sees is the poor being denied a fair trial. What he sees are the oppressed being denied an access to the legal system. What he sees is corruption and bribery influencing decisions. What he sees is the rich and the wealthy and the oppressive remaining rich, wealthy, and oppressive, and the poor and the needy and the marginalized continuing to be just that. In the place of judgment, where there should be justice, wickedness was there. And it's not hard to relate to that, is it? today. Not just in the law courts, but in our own lives. We experience this. We experience injustice. Think of times in your life. You've experienced injustice. That anger, that indignation that comes from being wronged and you have no recourse. You have no way of putting it right. One of the hardest things I find um, in working for a church is that there are times in, in situations of conflict where I can't defend myself. And I find that really hard. There are times when there is a conflict, and this inevitably happens, and someone else will feel free to talk to a whole bunch of people and tell a version of events and tell an interpretation of a story and give their side of everything that's gone on. So you have all these people, and I know there are all these people now who have this negative view of me, who have this perception of me and what I've done that is skewed and slanted by this side of the story, and I just wish, you know this feeling, you just wish I could put some facts on the table. I just wish that I could tell my side of the story. I wish that I could call them up and balance, but you just can't do it. It's not helpful. It's not constructive. It escalates the spiral of conflict and irritates and angers the other person when you do that kind of thing and just sends them into even more of a gossiping rage. So I have to hold my tongue and live with the fact that people are knowing things, saying things, hearing things that I feel are a personal injustice against me. You've been in these kinds of situations. Someone's wronged you and they've, nothing's happened. They've just gotten away with it. Someone slandered you and there's nothing. You, you, just, you just feel like this is not how it's supposed to be. You know the anger you get? You know that deep sense of rage and indignation? Because we have a sense of justice, I think, quite deeply as human beings. And when that is violated, it really causes an unsettled spirit. really causes a deep anger in us that we have been wronged, we have been grieved, and there's nothing we can do. It's injustice. It's the injustice in our lives. It's the injustice in our social 
circles, in our world, in the church, in all kinds of contexts, where there should be justice, where there should be judgment. What we see is wickedness. What we see is injustice and unrighteousness. And the bleakest part of this passage is that the quester looks around and he not only sees injustice in this life, he, he, he can't see justice in the next life either. This is where his most depressing comments come. Not only does he see injustice here, but he looks ahead and sees no chance for any justice in the future. And so he concludes humans really are no different to animals. Well, to be fair to him, what he actually says is that human beings are like animals in the sense that all of them die, which is true. You can't fault him for that. He's basically saying human beings and animals share the same fate of death. We are mortal beings. Our life is going to end. We will die. That's true. On the issue of what happens after that, he is at best agnostic. Who knows if the human spirit rises upwards and if the spirit of the animal goes down to the earth? He's just throwing up his hands and saying, well, who knows? Because he's an empiricist. He's looking around and observing life under the sun. Beyond that, who knows? Because you have to understand his limitation as a wisdom teacher. Wisdom teachers are concerned with this life, how it is to be lived well. Wisdom literature can't take us past that. To get past that, to get a view of what happens after this life and where it's all heading, we need to listen to a voice, not of a wisdom teacher, but of a prophet. To get the bigger perspective, we need to listen to the voices of the prophets who start to open up a picture to us that the quester in Ecclesiastes couldn't quite see. He's grasping for it, but he can't quite get it. Turn over to Isaiah 32. Isaiah 32, verse 15. The verses just before this have been very bleak. They've been a picture of God's judgment, a picture of desolation that's coming on those who don't follow the Lord. But in verse 15, it turns into this beautiful picture of what happens when justice is done and what kind of future God is going to one day bring about. Verse 15, till the Spirit is poured out on us from on high, and the desert becomes like a fertile field, and the fertile field seems like a forest. The Lord's justice, there's Mishpat, will dwell in the desert. His righteousness, there's Siddiq, live in the fertile field. The fruit of that righteousness will be peace, shalom, peace. Its effect will be quietness and confidence forever. My people will live in peaceful dwelling places. Doesn't that sound so rich? In secure homes, in undisturbed places of rest. What this passage shows us is where God's justice leads to. Justice has a goal. Justice has a destination. And the destination of God's justice is shalom, peace. That's where it's all heading. In fact, you could say, that anything that violates and disturbs God's shalom, his peace, is an injustice. And that is the benchmark we should use to determine what is just and what is not just, the state of shalom. But when we think about shalom, which is usually translated peace, don't just think about this warm, inner, fuzzy feeling of peace that we sometimes get when I, I have a peace about this, I'm at peace with that. No, no, no. Shalom is bigger, much bigger. Shalom is universal, worldwide, 
peace on a massive scale. The kinds of metaphors that the prophets use to describe this day of shalom, the age of shalom that God is bringing about, are images like the hills dripping with new wine and the storehouses overflowing with new grain. That's shalom. What's the picture? Abundance. Social equality where there is enough, more than enough for everyone. There is no less than and greater than, richer than, poorer than. There's enough for everyone. Images like Isaiah 1, they'll beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. It's a wonderful picture of God's shalom. What is happening? We're moving from violence to nonviolence. Or you could say from violence to fruitful labor. No, he didn't say you're going to beat your sword into a cocktail glass. He said you'll beat your sword into a plowshare, an instrument of work, labor. There's labor and work and effort in shalom, but it's fruitful and productive and a joy every second of the day. Shalom is a place or an age or a vision of nonviolence and fruitful work and labor. Perfect relationship where the lion will lie down with the lamb, Isaiah says, and a little child will lead them. Beautiful relationship between people with humanity and with God. Abundance for everyone. This is the age of shalom that God promises. This is the prophetic vision of where it's all leading. And this is an outworking of God's justice. That's where justice gets to. And that's the picture that the quest in Ecclesiastes doesn't have. That's why he finishes on this note of despair. In verse 17 in Ecclesiastes 3, there is this note of hope because he talks about God's judgment. And he talks about the fact God will one day bring into judgment all things. The righteous and the wicked, they will be held to account. But he doesn't have a picture of where that, ju- that judgment leads. If all you've got is this idea that God's going to have this judgment and that people will be judged between the righteous and the wicked and you've got no comprehension of what comes beyond that judgment and what the purpose of that judgment is, you're lost. You're despairing. The whole point of God's judgment is to bring about his shalom to lead to shalom, and to ensure that there is no injustice in it. This is why the unjust and the wicked are excluded from the age and the the place of shalom, so that those who inhabit shalom will live in undisturbed places of rest and secure dwelling homes, as Isaiah tells us. It is a place without injustice. It's a place without wickedness. It's a place without unrighteousness. It's this beautiful, all-encompassing, universal wholeness and flourishing and delight, as one author puts it. It is the goal of justice. So God's justice is always restorative. It is always about bringing about of shalom. It's not retributive. It's not vindictive. It's restorative. It is always intended towards the bringing about of shalom a place of perfect relationship between God and self and others in the world. That's what the quester couldn't see. That's why he gets himself so depressed and falls back on this, let's just eat and drink and be merry because that's all we've got. He couldn't see shalom. Turn over to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to cover a few verses today as we look at this idea of God's justice. I want to show you how God intends to bring about this age of shalom, this age of justice. Here is a verse in Matthew twelve eighteen that Matthew plucks out of Isaiah to describe Jesus and his ministry. 
It's the same verse that Bruce read earlier from Isaiah, but here Matthew quotes it and applies it directly to Jesus. Here is my servant whom I have chosen, the one I love, in whom I delight. I will put my spirit on him and he will proclaim what? Justice to the nations. He will not quarrel or cry out. Look at how justice comes about. Listen to how justice is coming. And no one will hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break. It's a picture of gentleness. And a smoldering wick he will not snuff out. It's a picture of mercy. Till he, I love this phrase, till he leads justice to victory. In his name the nations will put their hope. This is what Jesus has done. He has led God's justice to victory. When Jesus died, he became the ultimate victim of injustice. He absorbed the world's injustice. He absorbed the injustice we've committed against each other. We're all guilty of that. Much as we can think of the times when people have wounded us, Lord knows we've also done it to each other. And Jesus absorbed it all on the cross. The injustice he didn't deserve was put upon him as he hung there. But as he was raised from the dead on Easter Sunday, as we will celebrate next Sunday, what he did is led justice to victory. He brought forth justice from the grave. He brought forth God's shalom from the grave. Not just one man walking out of a tomb, but this whole age of shalom secured and guaranteed for us. Justice triumphed over injustice through the dying and rising of Christ. He put to death the powers of sin and Satan and evil and injustice and unrighteousness. His justice has triumphed over all the injustice that human beings commit against each other and against the Lord to whom they are accountable. Christ triumphed over it all, broke the power of injustice and led God's justice to victory. He has established shalom upon the earth as a guarantee of that day when God's going to bring it about in full reality. And that justice starts as God places people back in right relationship with him. Remember, justice is about restored relationships. Justice is about putting together, putting back together what has come apart and restoring what has gone wrong. So is it any surprise that when you get to the New Testament and you read the letters of Paul, the word that he uses to describe this process of humans coming back into reconciled relationship with God and one another is justification. In Romans and Galatians. This process by which Jew and Gentile and all kinds of diverse people are brought into reconciled relationship with one another and reconciled to God is justification. Why? Because it is a demonstration of the justice of God being outworked. God's shalom between each other and God's shalom between humanity and God. That's why Romans 3 says, God did this, offered Christ, to demonstrate his justice at the present time. The cross of Christ and the resurrection of Christ are a demonstration of God's justice. His putting right what has gone. Again, don't think of this in, ter- in, the, in, the, in the Western justice system way that we tend to think about justice as sentences, punishments, penalties, ledger system, checks and balances. Biblical justice is relational to its core. And justice involves the reconciling of parties and restoring of what has been lost and damaged so that there can be shalom. This starts as we are reconciled to God and then it ripples out as we are reconciled to each other. And here's the really exciting part. God now calls us to be justice makers. He has given us this mantle 
He has justified us, not just to be justified, that was a mouthful, but that we might be justice makers, that we might be a community of justice. And what would that look like for us to be a community of justice? Another great symbol of justice in the Western world is uh, Lady Justice with the scales. You know that picture? She's got the scales of justice in one hand, got the blindfold on, she's got the sword in the other hand. It's a very loaded symbol. The scales, the impartiality of justice, things being weighed in the balance. The sword to exact vengeance on those who are the offenders. And the blindfold is interesting. The blindfold is this pure impartiality so that she doesn't know who is in front of her and judges without bias or prejudice or preference. And that That's brilliant in terms of a Western criminal justice system. But here is the distinction between that system of justice and biblical justice. In the Bible, God takes the blindfold off. Biblical justice has its eyes wide open to the humanity and the face of the one who stands before it. Biblical justice... Listen to this. Biblical justice does show partiality. Biblical justice does show bias. It does show preference. And it does show special treatment. That sounds bizarre, doesn't it? Who would it show bias toward? The poor and the needy and the weak and the outcast and the widow and the fatherless and the foreigner and the stranger. These are the groups that constantly receive God's preferential treatment. His justice moves towards these people with compassion and mercy. That is not something different from God's justice. It is precisely the expression of it. This is why the voice of Zechariah the prophet thunders, this is what the Lord Almighty requires of you. Administer true justice. Show mercy and compassion to one another. Do not oppress the widow or the fatherless, the foreigner or the poor. Do not plot evil against each other. Do you see what justice looks like? It looks like mercy. It looks like compassion. It looks like moving with grace and love towards anyone, anywhere who is in need. Justice is not just about deciding who needs to be punished and deciding who's in the right. The road to justice is paved with mercy. It is paved with compassion. And it leads to shalom. One of my favorite ministries in this church is our meal ministry. And those of you that have turned up on someone's doorstep with a freshly made meal for a family that's just had a baby or a family that's struggling and stressed or for whatever reason, and you have seen the joy and the gratitude on the faces of those people that you've delivered this hot casserole to or whatever it is, you know what it means to do God's justice. That's exactly what you're doing. When you hand over that casserole, you are doing, you're being a justice maker. That's actually what justice looks like, biblical justice. See how different it is to our Western criminal justice sort of concept? Justice is relational and it's full of mercy and it's full of compassion and it is the reconciling of that which is put wrong. It's the bringing back together 
and it can be through simple things like making a meal. And you find the people that have received the hot casserole are the first ones to put their hand up to go on the list to make a hot casserole for someone else because they see the beauty of it. They see the value of it. They see the way that it brings people together and creates a community of compassion and a community of care and a community of mercy. That is biblical justice. This is who we are to be to each other as we become a community of justice. It's looking out for the poor. It's looking out for the one who's stressed. It's looking out for the one who has less than. It's looking out for the needy. And it's doing what you can do. Because you'll see a whole lot of needs I don't see. And you'll be in tune with people that others aren't. And where you see a need, and where you see someone who's suffering and struggling, you be a justice maker. You bring God's justice into that situation because justice, time and time again, is on behalf of those who are marginalized, those who are more vulnerable, the weaker members of the community. They are the ones who need God's justice. And as we become a community of justice, it starts to ripple out, and justice becomes something that we practice, not just to one another. It becomes something we practice in the world. I was talking to Andrew Greening from our church a couple of weeks ago, and he was saying that once a month, he gets together with another 80 guys, uh, not from our church, this is another church on the shore that does this, gets together with 80 guys for breakfast at 7 a.m. on on a Saturday morning, have breakfast from 7 to 8, and then from 8 to 10, they go and serve widows in the community, across the, the shore, maybe across the city, specifically widows that ministry is targeted at. And they will go and do any kind of handyman, tradesman, whatever stuff that these widows need done around their house, around their section, whatever it is, any kind of fixing, doing up, whatever, totally free. They'll go and do this for for two hours. They split up in teams. They're sent out. It's all coordinated and organized through another church. And this is a ministry because this is exactly what Christians should be doing. And what he's doing when he goes out on mission and helps widows in our community is he's doing God's justice. He is being a justice maker. He's putting right what has gone wrong. He's reconciling relationships and he's bringing compassion and mercy into situations where it may be lacking. Where is the need for justice around you? Who are the people in your life who are stressed and stretched and struggling and suffering? Who is it? And could it be that God is prompting you, nudging you, maybe kicking you towards demonstrating his justice to those people, bringing love, bringing shalom. Shalom might look like a cup of tea in someone's lounge who is very, very lonely. That shalom may look like a card sent just to remind someone that you're thinking of them and praying for them. That shalom may look like an anonymous check put in the mail. That shalom may look like making a meal, and if you're not sure who to give it to, make it and we'll freeze it in the church freezer and we'll figure out in time who we can give it to. That shalom may look like a check made out or money transferred to the church relief fund that we use to give to people who are needy. If you don't have someone right in front of you, you can still be a general justice maker in those senses. The relief fund's there, the church freezer's there, it's empty, we need the meals. Let's be justice people. Let's be a community of justice one to another. And let's be justice makers in the world, bringing mercy, bringing compassion, and leading to God's shalom wherever we can in the smallest of ways, smallest of conversations, we're bringing justice to victory. Let me finish this morning 
with the words of St. Teresa of Avila. Christ has no body on earth but yours, no hands but yours, no feet but yours. Yours are the eyes through which Christ's compassion for the world is to look out. Yours are the feet with which he is to go about doing good. And yours are the hands with which he is to bless us now. May that be true of us as we become a community of justice. Let's pray. Father, I thank you that you have demonstrated your justice to us by sending Jesus. That he's come to put right all that's gone wrong in our lives and in our world. I thank you that it's only because of him we can ever hope to be showing justice to each other. But God, now that Christ has won the victory, we want to take up that mantle. We want to be selfless. We want to be full of faith. We want to be a generation that seeks you and seeks justice for each other. We want to be reconcilers, Lord. We want to be ministers of reconciliation. We want to be ambassadors of justice. And I pray that you'd give us the eyes to see the needs around us where maybe we might have just walked past them before, never been tuned into them before. Just give us that antenna to just sense and know. And, and Spirit of God, would you even just prompt us to know when there might be situations that we can move in and minister some of your justice on behalf of the oppressed, the downtrodden, the weak, the vulnerable. And God, for those this morning who are in that situation, for those this morning who are suffering and struggling and carrying heavy burdens, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you would give them the humility to place themselves in a posture of receiving justice from others, hard as it may be and humbling as it may be, for those who this morning just need to receive, receive love and compassion and mercy from you and perhaps from the hands of others. Would you give them open hearts to receive it? And would you allow them to know that it's okay to simply receive justice sometimes and not have to give it? Because there'll be a season as they gain strength where they can minister to others again. Lord, make us a community of justice, I pray. Make us a community of shalom. And let us be a little microcosm here at shore. A little, little taste of that future day of shalom that you're bringing about. May it take shape here as we love each other in Christ's name. Amen. Connection Point is a joint production between Connection Resources and Shore Community Christian Church. If you would like a free copy of today's message, please email us or phone us on 0800 90 30 90. To subscribe to our free podcasts or to listen to the latest message, go to connectionresources.org.nz.